listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. Thanks for joining with us today. This year, we have begun a new series titled, Your Kingdom Come, based on the Old Testament book of 1st and 2nd Samuel. This is a book that calls us to action. The text prods and pokes us with this great question, will you submit your life to the Son of God? It's a call to humble ourselves before this King and trust in Jesus. For more information, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thanks for joining with us today. Would you grab your Bibles this morning? Would you open them up to the book of 1 Samuel? We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and 14. And if you're visiting this morning, we're working through First and Second Samuel, and what we're doing is we're reading the text, the story, and then we're pondering and what it means for us and what God's revealing. So First Samuel chapter 13 and chapter 14. So we have a big text in front of us, so get ready. First Samuel chapter 13. Hear the word of God. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gabeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash, the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, and some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And all the people were scattering from him, so Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went from Gilgal. The, people, the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gabeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash, 
and the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Orphra to the land of Shual, another company turned toward Beth Horan, and another company turned toward the border that looked down on the valley of Zoboim, toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for the sharpening the axes and for setting the goats. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and, his, and Jonathan his son had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gabeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sine. And the one crag rose in the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, a half-furrow's length in an acre of land. There was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled in the earthquake, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gabeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. And Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. 
and the battle passed beyond beth Adam. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charged the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. And Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now defeat among the Philistines has not been great. And they stuck, struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ijalon, and the people were faint. And the people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him in that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. And he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. And, but if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thumim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan, and Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. And Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly instruct the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, Malchishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the first four was Mirav, 
and the name of the younger, Michael. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, and the daughter of Himaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. And there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Oh, Father, we do ask now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. We need your word this morning. Amen. So there we go. We have chapter 13 and chapter 14 in front of us. Okay, quick change there. So we got chapter 13 and chapter 14 in front of us. It's a big, long story. So let's set ourselves up for the text. So let's start with this question. What are you made of? What are you made of? So I can remember being asked that question during a time what we called two-a-days, so two-a-days was the most dreaded and hated part of the football schedule. So right in the middle of August, the hottest part of the summer, we had these practices called two-a-days. And what we spent most of our time doing was, was conditioning out in the hot sun. And the worst thing about two-a-days was this. There was two practices each day, two two-hour practices. And so when you were tired, when you were worn out after you had run and run and run, after the sun had beaten on you, at the end of four hours, you'd be standing on a line ready for another sprint. And what the coaches would often do is they'd walk up and down the lines and they'd see that we were tired and we were fatiguing. And they would say, what are you made of? What are you made of? And what they wanted us to do was to reflect upon our internal makeup they wanted us to think about our character. Are you a quitter? Do you have grit? Do you have character? Do you have endurance? Or are you just going to give up now? You only have a few more sprints to run. So what are you made of? As we think about this question, this question is of deep biblical significance. To put it like this, our internal makeup really matters to God. He cares about the sort of people we are. He cares about our character. In fact, we can go even as far as to say the gospel of Jesus Christ is about this question. Because Jesus died, God now calls each and every one of us to kill all vice. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, God calls each and every one of us to become a different sort of person. So what are you made of? Well, this question forces its way into chapter 13 and chapter 14. In these two chapters, we meet two characters. We meet Saul, and then we meet his son, Jonathan. And in these chapters, as we read through them, we realize that both of these men have something in common. Both of these men in these two chapters are put into really tight spots. They both face the same enemy. The Philistines are in front of them. 
They both face the same demoralizing set of circumstances. They lack weapons. They lack numbers. And both of these men have to deal with the fickleness of Israel. But as we study these two chapters, we realize that there's something radically different between these two men. We look at Saul, and in Saul we find a man who is controlled by the the vice of cowardice. And then we look at Jonathan, and we see a man who is courageous. And so chapters 13 and 14 contain three scenes, and this is how we're going to work through the text of Scripture this morning. In the first scene, chapter 13, we're going to take a long look at Saul. And as we look at Saul, we're going to see the vice of cowardice. And this chapter is going to uh, reveal what cowardice is all about. In the second scene, which is chapter 14, 1 through 23, we're going to meet Jonathan. And as we look at Jonathan, we're going to see courage, and we're going to learn what courage is all about. And then finally, in the third scene, so chapter 14, verses 24 through 46, Saul and Jonathan are going to meet. Or we could put it another way, courage and cowardice is going to meet, and it's going to be an ugly scene. So before we dive into the text and start working through it, I want to give you a word about application, what this text is supposed to do. So God has given us these two chapters, these three scenes, these two characters, Saul and Jonathan, so that we might become a different sort of people. So what God is going to do is he's going to use these two chapters to change our our inner makeup this morning, our, our character, our disposition. And specifically, as we think about it, God has given us the story of Saul in chapter 13 and chapter 14 so that we might detect cowardice in our lives. And then after detecting this vice in our lives, that we might take it to the cross of Jesus Christ and crucify it there. And then as we look at Saul, God, or then as we look at Jonathan, God has given us the story of Jonathan for a specific reason, so that we might see courage and that we in faith might take courage and try it on for ourselves. And so God wants to change us this morning with these two chapters. And so let's get to work praying that God will indeed change us. So let's start with the first scene. It's about Saul, and it's about his cowardice. So chapter 13 begins by giving us a bunch of facts, but there's one fact that stands out in the midst of these facts. It's verse 3. It says, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. So what exactly happened here in verse 3 is debated. Some think that that Jonathan carried out a stealth attack and assassinated a leader of the Philistines, and, and others think that Jonathan simply had a raid against the Philistines and knocked out a contingent of soldiers. It's fun to think about, but at the end, it doesn't really matter because whatever Jonathan did in verse 3, he created a massive problem for Israel because it stirred up the Philistines for war. And it has to be stressed, this was a massive problem for Israel. Just look at verse 5. The text tells us this, the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. And just let those numbers just sink in for a moment. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, troops, Don't even bother counting them because they are more than the sand on the sea. So what's the result here? Well, as you would expect, as Israel looks upon their enemy, they're filled with panic, they're filled with fear. And we we see it in the story, verse 6, verse 7. The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble. 
For the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And Saul was still at Gilgal, and the people follow him trembling. So that's the setup of the story. There's the circumstances in front of Saul. Now what the story does is it slows down. And as the story slows down, the story focuses in on Saul. What the story is going to do is it's going to show us the predicament that Saul is put in and the pressure that he experiences. So we have to picture this in our minds. The Philistine army is in front of Saul. It's a massive army. The numbers are bigger than we can even imagine. And Saul is looking at them, and this army has come to exterminate Israel. And then Saul turns his gaze, and he looks at his own troops. And as he studies his troops, he finds them melting away in fear. They're running to their homes. And by the time this whole scene is done, Saul's going to only have 600 men left to fight. What makes matters worse is that Saul is hamstrung in his leadership. He really can't do anything at this point. He, he can't rally his troops. He can't move against the Philistines. And we ask, why? Well, because he has to wait seven days for Samuel to come, offer sacrifice, and give him instructions from the Lord. So what does Saul have to do? He has to wait. He has to wait as he watches the Philistines gather in strength. He has to wait as he watches his army weaken behind him. And here's the problem, chapter 13, verse 8. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. Just imagine the stress that Saul was experiencing. Imagine the fear. Imagine the panic. Everything is going wrong for Saul. <laughs> he is waiting. The enemy is gathering strength. His forces are weakening. And here's the predicament that Saul is in. And as readers, we ask, well, what is Saul going to do about it? This is what he does. He takes action. He, he bypasses Samuel. He bypasses the instruction, the word of God, and he issues a command. Verse 9, he says, bring the burnt offering to me and the peace offerings. We ask, well, what happened here? Saul's in this tight spot. What happens? Well, we see it. Saul lost his, his nerve. He gave into fear. And as we think about Saul, we've been looking at him for quite some time since chapter 9. As we think about Saul and what happens here in chapter 13, we say, well, this doesn't seem like a one-off event, does it? We remember back to Saul's call to kingship. Samuel called him to do this demonstration. There's the garrison of the Philistines. Do what your hand finds to do. Go attack that garrison. But, but what happened in the story? We don't hear anything about attack against the Philistines. Saul falters. And then Saul comes home and he meets his, his uncle and his uncle asks, well, what did Samuel talk to you about? But Saul keeps quiet about the kingdom of God. He won't talk about kingship. And then there's this other scene. Remember when, when Saul is taken by Lot, but Israel can't find him? Where was he? He was hiding among the baggage. This wasn't the first time that Saul lost his nerve. And so we see Saul here. He lost his nerve. And as readers, we ask, well, well, how did this happen to Saul? Why was Saul such a courage, a coward? Well, the text gives us an answer. Verse 11. So Samuel comes to Saul, and Saul starts explaining. And this is what Saul says. 
When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the day appointed and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Why was Saul such a coward? Well, we see it in, in verse 11. Saul's heart was controlled by what he could see. He could, he could only see the, 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 the Philistines gathering in strength. He could only see his own army weakening. And because that's all he could see, he lost his nerve, and then he disobeyed the word of God, and he played the part of a coward. And so Samuel speaks to Saul. And Samuel drops the word of judgment upon Saul, and it is a sharp word. Verses 13 and 14. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. So chapter 13 is a rather stunning chapter. And so the question is, well, what are we supposed to do with it? Well, the story leaves us with a few considerations to work through. First consideration is this. Saul's story should cause us to pause and take stock of our own hearts. So as I was reading this week, I came across some of the writings of Thomas Aquinas. He's an old theologian, and he writes about virtues and vices in the Christian life, and he writes about cowardice. And he says this, he says, the coward shrinks from great things out of the littleness of soul. Such an interesting way to put it. What makes a coward? A little soul. And he goes on to say, trying to explain this, he says, the coward's appetite is fear of failure and one what falsely deems to exceed one's ability. And so we can try to interpret that. The coward has a small soul. And why does the coward have a small soul? Well, the coward looks at their difficulties, their small power, and doesn't look upon the almighty power of God. And so we read the story of Saul and we see, yeah, I can see it in Saul. He's a man with a small soul because he has an appetite of failure, fear of failure. So what does this mean for us? Well, I think we can try this on for size. So we're at a really interesting point in history. So the last two years, we've been living in a pandemic. And so we can start applying the story of Saul to our life. We've just lived through the last two years, and the story starts asking us. During those last two years, what, what, what was your soul latching onto all of that time? Did it cling to the numbers of those who were sick? Did it, did it feed on the fear of death, the fear of failure? Did it cause you to, to shrink back? The story is asking us, go to the story of Saul and start examining your life in light of Saul's story. Look at the last two years and, and ask yourself, does it seem like I have a small soul, a soul like Saul's? And so the story should cause us to take stock of our own hearts. Do you have a small soul? Second consideration is this. It took Saul years. Even more, the timeline of Saul's life is, is debated and confusing, but it took Saul decades to perfect the vice of cowardice. He didn't simply stumble on this scene in chapter 13 and fall into sin. 
Rather, he had been perfecting this vice for a good long time. And it worked like this. It was a small act of fear over here. It was a small act of timidity over there. It was an act of faithfulness in this event. And what all of these things did, these small things, is they began to etch in, into Saul's soul cowardice. So you think, think of like ruts in a road. The more you drive on a road in the country, all of a sudden there are ruts in it. They're formed. And when you, when you drive there, your car just slips right into them. As we can think about Saul's life, he had been doing this for some long time. And then he gets to this scene. And what happens? Well, his car just slips right into the ruts that he had etched into his soul. Small act of fear over here. Small act of unfaithfulness there. And all of a sudden he gets to this climactic scene and he just reverts to what he's always been doing. And so the story asks us, brother, sister, what are, you, what are you perfecting in your life? What sort of ruts are you wearing into your soul? What are you etching into your heart? And again, we can think about our, our historical situation for the last two years. The text wants us to ask, well, what have you been etching into your heart? What have you been perfecting in your life, setting yourself up to? And a third consideration. Saul's cowardice disqualified him from the kingdom, from service in God's kingdom. And because of that, he would be replaced by a different sort of man. And as we think about it, what we find in the Old Testament is always intensified as we move into the New Testament. That's how it works. What we find in the Old Testament is always intensified as we move into the New Testament. And so listen to this warning, Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. John says this to the the church. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so what is this story doing? It's showing us the seriousness of this vice. Saul was a coward, and because he was a coward and he had perfected that vice in his life, he was disqualified from service in the kingdom of God. What Revelation 21 verse 8 says, if you perfect perfect that vice as well in your life, practicing it, you will be removed from the kingdom of God and you will share in the second death. So that's the first scene and it's a heavy scene. But there's a second scene and we get to meet someone else, thankfully. We get to meet Jonathan. And so let's work on Jonathan here. So Jonathan, he faced the same difficulties as his father. He saw the same Philistine army. He was aware that his own army was bleeding troops right and left. He was aware that they lacked weapons and strength. But when we look at Jonathan and his life, we find something different in him. We find courage. So let's look at his story. Jonathan's story begins with a secret. He hatches a plan to go fight the Philistines, but interestingly, he doesn't tell his father about what he's going to do. And this invites a very interesting comparison. Just think about how the story is set up and and the comparisons that that the story wants us to make. We find Jonathan plotting and planning. I want to take the battle to the Philistines. Then we find Jonathan going off and taking the battle to the Philistines. And what do we learn about Saul this whole time? Chapter 14, verse 2. Saul was living in a cave. He's living in a cave. So Jonathan has this plan, and it's a daring plan. The two armies, they're camped out on two different heights. Israel is on the height of Geba, 
and the Philistines are on the height of Michmash, and you have to understand that these armies could see each other from where they were, were perched, and between these two armies, there's this ravine going between them. And so Jonathan's plan is simple. He's going to go over to Michmash with his armor bearer, and he's going to make war against these Philistines, just the two of them. And so there Jonathan goes. He climbs down this rocky cliff called Bozaz, which means something like slippery. But this isn't a sneak attack because once he gets to the bottom of the cliff, he, he shows himself to the garrison of the Philistines. And they, they call him up. They invite him up. And so Jonathan climbs up this rocky cliff called Sene, which means something like, like thorny. And then after all of this difficult climbing, Philistine, one after another after another, falls before Jonathan dead, leaving about 20 dead. And the result of Jonathan's plan is absolutely staggering. Chapter 14, verse 15. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and even the raiders trembled, the earthquake, and became a very great panic. Just think about this whole scene for a minute, moment. Jonathan's plan was ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Hey, we're going to climb down the steep cliff. We're going to show ourselves to these guys. We're going to climb up the steep cliff, and then we're going to make war against them. It was dangerous, not just the cliff climbing, but the, the war part. It wasn't safe. It wouldn't be approved by his own father, his cowardly father. That's why Jonathan kept it a secret. So here are these two men taking on a detachment of Philistines. But it's here in this story that the scriptures reveal what courage is to us. We find a man taking action when no one else would take action. We find a man risking his life when everyone else was trying to preserve and save their lives. We find a man pursuing his enemies when everyone else was trying to figure out how to retreat and pull away. And so here's the question. We asked it about Saul's cowardice. Now we need to ask it about Jonathan's courage. What made Jonathan so courageous? We get this scene, chapter 14, verse 6. There's Jonathan, there's his armor bearer. Jonathan turns to his armor bearer and he starts to speak to him. And he says this, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by, by many or by few. Why was Jonathan brave? Well, just look, what did Jonathan set his heart on? Did he, he set his heart upon the strength of his own army? No. Did he, he set his heart upon the, the strength of the Philistine army? No. No, no, no. Jonathan fixed his heart upon the saving power of God. He preaches to his armor bearer, and as he preaches to his armor bearer, Jonathan just unveils his heart to him. He says, nothing can hinder the Lord. What's going on in Jonathan's heart? He is pondering the almighty power of God and nothing else. And here in Jonathan, we see a man with a large soul. That's what a large soul looks like. He doesn't shrink from the demands that, that are in front of him. He meets them. His appetite isn't fear, but, but faith. He looks not at the difficulties, the cliffs he has to climb, or the army he has to feed. Rather, he looks upon the almighty power of God and nothing else. And this is where the story comes for us. And this is where we get hung up. 
So here's Jonathan. He's standing before us. Better yet, it's probably better to say that Jonathan is, is towering before us. We're looking up to him, this great figure of faith, and we think to ourselves, if this is what courage is, true biblical courage, that which God loves and desires, that's which, which God wants to see in his people, I'm in trouble because I feel really small compared to Jonathan. Actually, I feel a bit like Saul. I feel like the guy who hangs out in the cave. And so the question is, as we look at Jonathan and as we see what true biblical courage is, we ask, is there any help for us? Or we can put it a different way, is there any gospel for us here? And there's gospel in this text. Look at chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them into the battle. So these two verses tell us there's these two groups of people, and they're holding these two groups of people out as examples. These are the supreme cowards of Israel. One group was so cowardly that they joined in with the Philistines and hired themselves out to the Philistines to make war against Israel. Then another group was so scared that they just fled the country. They just ran away from the battle. And so what happens here? As these men hear about the courage of Jonathan, as they consider his bravery and success and how the Lord was working through him to defeat the Philistines, what happened? Well, their hearts turned toward the Lord. And not only did their hearts turn toward the Lord, but their hearts turned toward the battle. These are glorious words. They too followed hard after them in the battle. They used to be scared, but now they picked up the, whatever weapon they had and they are pursuing the Philistines. And here's the truth. What we need in our life, if we are to have courage, is a Jonathan. And here's the good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ holds out someone better than Jonathan. Think about it like this. What did Jesus do? Well, like Jonathan, he went down. Jonathan climbed down a cliff called Slippery, but Christ went down a far more precarious cliff. He climbed down into a tomb bearing our sin and our shame. And like Jonathan, he went up. Jonathan climbed up a cliff called Thorny and defeated the enemies of God. And we see this in Christ Jesus, that he has accomplished a far greater climb. He rose from the dead, and in so doing, he defeated all of God's enemies, sin and death and Satan himself. And this is how it works. We gain courage not by looking at ourselves our own puny powers and our own puny abilities. This leads us to despair and it shrinks our souls. We'll be like Saul if we look at ourselves. No, we only gain courage. We're only moved to bravery when we look at Jesus Christ. So Christian, hear this. The remedy for your cowardice, your timidness, your weakness is the courage of Jesus Christ. We have to understand this. The gospel meets all of our needs. In the gospel, we receive the forgiveness of sins that is great and glorious, but that's not all that we get in the gospel because when we go to Christ in the gospel, we get all of Christ. We also get his bravery and his courage. And so the gospel call this morning is this. Look upon Christ. See Christ. Live upon his grace and his mercy. And you know what will happen? When you see Christ, he will meet you. 
fact, what you will find is he will draw near to your soul just as Jonathan drew near to his armor bearer. These Old Testament stories are so important because they help us understand the work of Jesus Christ for our souls. If you seek Jesus Christ, what will happen? Jesus will come to your soul just like Jonathan came to his armor bearer, and he will speak into your ear, and he will say this, nothing can hinder the Lord. Nothing can hinder the Lord. And that's Jesus' glorious ministry to his church even right now. What is happening this morning? Jesus Christ is coming near to us in our weakness, in our fear. And he comes to us and he says, nothing can hinder the Lord. Will you join me in the battle? Will you follow me? And as Christ's people, we say, yes, I want to follow Jonathan. I want to follow We've got scene one, we've got scene two, and now we've got scene three. And so far, we've established some very simple facts. Saul is a coward. Jonathan is courageous. And the Bible's been pushing on us the whole time. Don't be like Saul. Don't end up like Saul. Look at Jonathan. Follow Jonathan into the battle. Receive his courage. We have this one last scene to consider, and it is a really ugly scene because Saul crashes in to Jonathan. It's a meeting of cowardice and courage, and whenever they meet, it gets really ugly. And so let's pick the story back up. The route is on. The Philistines are retreating. They're in a panic, and the panic is so great that the Philistines are now killing other Philistines. And that, that's what God does when he shows up to battle. He makes the enemies insane, and they start killing each other. And so Saul and Israel join the fight. But as we watch what unfolds in chapter 14, we find that Saul is a man who is completely out of step. It's like you're watching a marching band, and there's one guy, and he's just walking out of step with everyone else, and that's Saul. Because of his cowardice, because that he has a small soul, he just can't do anything right in this chapter. So just follow along. In chapter 14, verse 18, Saul calls for the priest. He wants to receive directions from the Lord. And, and so the priest comes, and he's, he's doing his work of getting guidance from the Lord. But what does Saul do? Chapter 14, verse 19, he, Saul shouts to him. He commands him, withdraw your hands. It's a really odd scene. And according to my knowledge, it's unparalleled in the Old Testament. And as readers, we say, that's really weird. Why couldn't he just wait to receive God's word? But he didn't wait. In chapter 14, verse 24, then, then Saul puts his army under an oath. He says this to his men, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. And this oath is so foolish because it handicaps his army. So Jonathan hears about this oath later on. Jonathan is out fighting the war, and he hears it. Verse 29, verse 30, he says, My father has troubled the land. And you can just, you can just picture Jonathan moaning. Now the defeat among the Philistines is not great. And this oath leads the men of Israel, not just to falter in battle, but leads Israel into sin. Evening comes, and the army is so hungry that they're like ravenous animals, and they just pounce on whatever they can find, and they slaughter it, and they eat the meat with the blood. And someone comes to Saul, and they say, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And then this oath leads Saul into a collision with his own son. The Philistines are still fleeing. The army has finally been fed. And Saul wants to know, 
Should I continue the chase that night? Should we pursue the Philistines all night and, and completely defeat them? But the Lord doesn't answer Saul. And so Saul wants to figure out what's going on, and so the lots are cast. Who's at fault? So on one side, there's Saul and Jonathan. On the other side, there's, there's Israel, and Saul and Jonathan are taken, and then Saul and Jonathan are separated, and, and Jonathan is taken, and this is where the story gets chilling. Unknowingly, unwittingly, Jonathan tasted a little bit of honey, and for this breach, Saul makes this determination. Verse 44, he says, God do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Saul already made one oath that turned out bad, and now he is making another oath about killing his own son. And so as the story moves ahead, Saul completely unravels before us. And as we think about chapter 14, it's, it's like watching a, a train wreck in slow motion, just the crash and everything is just falling apart in front of us. This should have been a great day of salvation. They routed the Philistines, but how does the day end? Here is Saul, and what is he trying to do? He wants to kill his own son. He wants to kill the Savior of Israel. What we're going to find is this is not a one-off event. We're going to find in coming chapters that Saul, again, is going to want to kill the Savior of Israel. And so the question is, well, what do we do with this third scene? What do we do with this train wreck? Well, this train wreck is opening up our eyes to two realities. God wants us to see two things. First, God wants us to see just how bad cowards are for the people of God. Just think about it. Saul was a coward, and because he was a coward, he screwed everything up. Because his soul was small and he had this appetite for fear, he was out of step with what he should have been doing. When it was time to wait on the Lord, he acted. When it was time to act, he was, he was hiding in a cave. When it was time to press the attack, he, he sat back. When his soldiers needed refreshment, he refused it. When he should have shown mercy and leniency to his own son, he was determined to spill his blood, the blood of Israel's Savior. And the story ought to lead us to do a very simple thing. It ought to lead us to pray. It ought to lead us to pray, saying this, Lord, free us from all cowards so that we won't be destroyed. Lord, free us from all cowards so that we won't be destroyed. And it should cause us to start praying for ourselves, shouldn't it? We all have different areas of responsibility. If you're a father, you have a wife, perhaps children, grandchildren. If you own a business, you have employees. If you're a teacher, you have students. If you lead in the church, you've got God's people to take care of. And so should we pray? We should be praying for ourselves. Lord, would you free me from all cowardice? I see the life of Saul. He was a coward. He had a small soul. And because he had a small soul, everything went wrong. It was destruction for God's people. Would you save me from this? So the Lord wants us to see just how bad cowards are for the people of God. And so we pray, free us from all cowardice. The Lord wants us to see another thing as well. He wants us to see just how much we need courageous leaders. I love how the story ends. Saul is determined to kill his son. He takes another oath. Jonathan is going to die. But here are the people of God, and they will not let it happen. Verse 45. 
And the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. The people knew something was going on. They could see a difference between Saul and Jonathan. They knew that Jonathan had taken this act of courage and he had gone out by himself and routed the Philistines. And they knew what Saul was doing at the same time. They knew that he was hanging out in the pomegranate cave. They knew the difference between the souls of these two men. They knew that Jonathan had a large soul, that he trusted the Lord, and they knew that Saul had a, a small soul, and that he was, because of that, a terrible leader. And so they saw Jonathan's bravery, and their hearts ran after Jonathan, and they would not let go of Jonathan. And they knew this is the man that we need, and we cannot live without him. And this is where the story leaves us. The story leaves us and asks a very simple question. Do you know the man that you need? We've already talked about him this morning. It's Jesus Christ, isn't it? Our great victor, the triumphant king who has conquered all of God's enemies. Do you have the wisdom of Israel? Like we find in this story, do you cry out, we must have him? So here's the question. Will you let go of Jesus? Will you grab on to the greater Jonathan and never let go of him? Do you long for a brave man like that? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need your word, and we are so thankful that your word meets our needs. We need to be changed, and we need to grow in virtue, and we need to put to death vice in our lives. And so we pray, would you bless the preaching of your word now? May we find that our hearts have been rewired even in this moment. We pray this in Jesus' good and glorious name. Amen. Could you please stand?